Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. Thanks for joining me on the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monte Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. If you have a Bible handy, open up to the book of Philippians. You'll find it in the New Testament. It's a fairly short book, but it's packed with great lessons. One of the main themes from Philippians is giving yourself over to Christ. And you see it almost immediately in chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Paul writes, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 7, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. One of the things that defined the Philippian church was the way they gave themselves to God and to the work of the gospel. They participated. They weren't just spectators. They didn't stand on the sidelines. They didn't watch while everybody else did work. No, they got their hands dirty in helping to change people's lives with the power of the gospel. And they suffered for it. If you go to the end of chapter 1, it says here beginning in verse 27 and going through the end of the chapter. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You notice that the gospel takes work. You don't get to be a spectator. You have to work to be a part of the gospel. You have to be a participant. In no way alarmed, he says in verse 28, by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. They gave themselves out of the work, and they had to pay for it. They paid for it in suffering. Now, they weren't ashamed. They weren't ashamed of the fact they had to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Sadly, though, even among many Christians today, we don't see that same unselfishness. We don't see that same devotion to the gospel that we see in the example of the Philippians. Certainly, I don't think this is just a today problem, but it's hard not to be a commentator on your own generation. Many people today just have a, an I've got mine attitude. There's a tendency to be all right with the world around you as long as, as long as you just have what you want. 
if I have a decent job or a respectable family or passable intelligence or decent looks. And if I have enough friends, then why should I be involved in anything bigger than myself? Why should I sacrifice those comforts that I have, everything that I've achieved through social ladder climbing or education or hard work, why should I sacrifice that for the gospel or to serve other people or to serve God? It's kind of the same feeling of finding a seat in a game of musical chairs, that when the music stops, as long as you've got your seat, then you don't really care about what's happening to other people. Going back to the example of the Philippians, Paul points out in chapter 1 in verses 12 through 18 that there were people that he knew about who were preaching the gospel. Now, they, they were preaching the truth, so and he does acknowledge that, but there were people that he knew who were preaching the gospel just to make Paul jealous. They wanted to preach the gospel so that they could gloat about how many people they'd baptized or how many people they were studying with or the success they were having or how large the congregation was with which they were working. And, and, and Paul says they're doing it for all the wrong reasons. They're doing it for all the wrong reasons, he says in verse 17, proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Now, of course, Paul only cares that the truth is being preached, and he's happy, he says in verse 18, that people are hearing the gospel. But he goes on to explain, beginning in verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Even Paul wasn't immune from the feeling of I've got mine, of seeking one's selfish desires. For Paul, it's not a secret that he doesn't want to be on earth anymore. Being on earth and serving and working means suffering for him. He's being persecuted for the sake of his preaching. Everywhere he goes, people mistreat him malign him, insult him. Dying and being in heaven with Christ is so much better. That's what he would prefer. That's what he wants. He's pulled in that direction. For him, being done with all the work, being done with all the suffering, being done with the persecution, being done with people's pettiness, people's prejudice, people's anger, people's fury and their wrath, being done with all that and putting it behind him and just being with Christ in the afterlife, that's so much more preferable to him. But he says, if I stay, I know I'll get good work done. And I know that people need me. And I know that God needs me here. So if I'm supposed to stay, then I'll stay and I'll keep working. Those are the words of a man who has fully, who has totally, who has wholly given his life to God. It's not his life anymore. It's God's life. Go back to the book of Galatians and notice the way he puts it here in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. 
Paul understands that the only appropriate response to the unselfish sacrifice of Jesus for him is to live an unselfish life in the service of Christ. Christ gave his all for Paul and for everybody, so why shouldn't Paul and everybody give their lives for him? All of this leads us back to Philippians. So if your Bible's open to Philippians chapter 2, while it is undeniable that the entire Bible is the inspired word of God and is wonderful and has great application and has practical use, there are just some passages that are favorites of most people. You've got Psalm 23 or Romans 8 or what Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, for example, in Matthew chapter 5. Philippians 2 is also one of those passages of Scripture that's on a lot of people's list of favorite Scriptures. And there's a reason for that. Pick up here in Philippians 2 verse 1. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, that is, that same unselfish mindset, The same mind that says, Christ gave everything for me, so I'm going to give everything for him. The same mindset that says, even if other people don't serve God with the right mindset, even if other people aren't serving him in truth, I will serve him in truth. Being of the same mind, he says, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness, or empty conceit. My friends, I'll read that again. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's quite a tall order, isn't it? Do nothing from selfishness? A statement like that touches on every aspect of my life, from how I behave at school or at a job, to how I treat my spouse, a girlfriend or a boyfriend, how I raise my children, or my relationship with my parents and grandparents. It affects the way I interact with other Christians. It affects the way I preach the gospel. It affects the way that I live as an example for other people, unbelievers and believers alike. It affects the way I practice charity, how I share with people, or how I practice hospitality. It affects every aspect of my life. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. I take that literally. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And we need to treat other people as more important than ourselves. Now, he says you have to have this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he begins to give the example of Jesus in verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, that he was willing to become a human being. He was willing to humble himself in the service of other people. He he didn't need to stay at the right hand of God. It wasn't about his ego. It wasn't about position. It wasn't about stature. Even if he had to become a human being, and not just any regular human being, but but a, 
a Galilean born to dirt poor parents, a nobody from nowhere. If that was what it took to serve mankind and to serve his father, then that's what Jesus did. But he emptied himself in verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Everything that Jesus had to give, he gave. He didn't hold anything back. So in Philippians, we discover that Jesus already had an immensely good life before coming to this world. He existed in the form of God. He never had the attitude, though, of the, hey, I've got mine crowd. You're all on your own. He set aside his own desires and his own privilege, and he came to this world to do the will of his Father. What sustained Jesus in his earthly ministry wasn't the possibility of buying a new car, getting a raise the next year, or moving to a more prestigious neighborhood. Yet, how many of us seem to live only for those things? We say the phrase, it's why I get up in the morning about so many things. But do we ever say that about evangelism or prayer or Bible study or meaningful fellowship with other Christians? Do we ever say it about communion with God or living to please him in all things? As Jesus said in John 4 verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That is what sustained Jesus. What motivated him and kept him going through thick and thin was the prospect of pleasing his father. And maybe this is why he so resolutely faced starvation, physical deprivation, bodily abuse, and finally crucifixion. Isaiah 53 verse 7 in a prophecy about the Messiah says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. In light of Jesus' example, should it surprise us that selfish people are starving to death spiritually? How many totally selfish people do you know who may truly say that they hate life? John 5 verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative, Jesus says. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Hebrews 10 verse 7, In the roll of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. John 6 verse 38, For I have come down out of heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Too many people have a spectator's approach to Christianity. As if Jesus did all the dirty work and all the sacrificing so that I would not have to do anything difficult. And this is so far removed from what Jesus actually taught that it's a wholly untenable, indefensible position biblically. Go back to Philippians chapter 2. And after giving the example of Jesus in verses 5 through 11, look what he has to say here in Philippians 2 beginning in verse 12. So we've learned about Jesus and everything he did, the hard work that Jesus did, and counter to the attitude that, well, Jesus did all the work, so I could just sit back and relax. This is what Paul has to say as a response in verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, 
not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Listen to what Paul is saying. Just as you've always obeyed, now obey even more. In response to the example of Jesus who gave everything for us, Paul says, obey even more. Work harder. Give more of yourself. Yes, Jesus did the greater part. Yes, without the sacrifice of Jesus, none of us would have hope. And, and it should be so obvious to say, but let's say it anyway. If Jesus had not died on the cross and been raised from the dead, there is no amount of work that we could do to save us. There is nothing that we could do to earn salvation. Absolutely nothing. If it wasn't for Jesus, there is no hope. There is no possibility for our sins to be washed away. Nothing. But instead of looking at the sacrifice of Jesus and then just leaning back on that and resting and saying, God did all the work, so I don't have to do anything, the example of Jesus should spur us on to work even harder for him. Verse 14 of Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Don't whine and complain just because there's work set out for you. Don't whine and complain just because the Christian life has an expectation attached to it. Verse 15, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life, so that on the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. When I read scriptures like this, it just reminds me that my commitment must be a total one. God never asks a half-hearted effort from me, but complete and full devotion. I can't treat Christianity like Weight Watchers or Rotary Club or a sport or a hobby that I could just do for a while and then drop and pick up again later. I need to take it so much farther than even my own job or my devotion to my family. So with the last few minutes of our radio program, let me offer you some benefits of living for Christ fully. The first one is this. I have a more exciting life. Even though the text isn't talking about Christians per se, the life that we read of Abraham in the book of Genesis and his household serves as a riveting example of how exciting life is when we allow God to determine our course. Abraham went from the routine life of safety and security in the land of his relatives on a thousand-mile journey to a new land full of promise and adventure. He fought battles like in Genesis 14. He had a stimulating personal relationship with God. He witnessed the the miraculous conception of a son. And he saw wonders that most of us could only dream of. And at the end of this God-directed life, it was written of him in Genesis 25 verse 8. Now Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man satisfied with life. For everything else that that he may have lacked from time to time, Abraham could never say that his life was unexciting or unsatisfying. Yet most of us seem to be bored 
and uninterested in the richness and adventures of the saintly life. Number two, a life that you fully give to Christ is a life that you will not despise. Luke 9 verse 24 says, For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. There are no exceptions to this rule, my friends. Live for yourself and you'll lose life. Selfish people end up saying things like, I hate life, or I don't feel like there's a point to it all. When you walk a little further in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, you notice that all these great men and women of faith who lived for God had lives that they could be proud of. Their accomplishments were often made with eternity in mind. They served higher ideals than their fleshly contemporaries, Abel, Joseph, Rahab, David, and all the others didn't have much to regret from their lives. The writer notes that all these people were looking for something more meaningful than flesh, gold, or worldly prestige. Like it says in Hebrews 11 verse 16, as it is they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. Number three, a life that you give fully to God is a life that is for a cause bigger than anything worldly. There are so many causes that we live for that actually have very little to offer us. Money is one example. Like 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. There are also causes that are inherently good and honorable, but are still limited by their worldliness. Family, for example, is not the be-all, end-all of life, since Jesus himself expects our devotion to him to supersede family. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Number four, a life that you give fully to God is a genuine life. Look at Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Daniel's in the Old Testament. He's one of the prophets. And it says in Daniel 6, verse 10, Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Prayer to God was illegal, and yet he kept doing it because he was living a genuine life. He didn't pray just to be seen by other people. He didn't pray in just pretense. He didn't pray just because it was some ritual or habit that he had. He prayed because he wanted to pray to God. He prayed because it was the right thing to do. He prayed because for him, a life without prayer wasn't a life worth living. And no matter how bad the situation got, Daniel didn't change who he was. How many of us are envious of that kind of personal honesty? Would you like to be as natural and as genuine as that? Living fully for God means that you do not have to have multiple personalities for every circumstance. In temptation, you are just as resolute as you are sitting in the church building on a Sunday. You're just as honest in front of sinners as you are in front of saints. You begin to realize that you have nobody to impress but God, and he expects the same response in all situations. It has been said that Christians have unlocked the secret of remaining emotionally and spiritually positive in good times and in bad. And you can see that in the book of Philippians chapter 4 verses 11 through 13. Finally, a life that you fully give to God is the real life. We're made in God's image, Genesis 1, verse 26. 
That is the original design for us, to be spiritually, mentally, and emotionally like God. We're, we're small versions of God. It doesn't mean that we are God. It just means that we're small versions made in the image of God. And if you're meant to be in the image of God, then you are only being the true you, the genuine you, when you've given yourself fully, wholly, and totally to God. The more you serve him and the longer you serve him, the more you are conformed into his image. You're transformed. You're changed. Read Ephesians chapter 4 sometime for a great example of this. The second half of that chapter talks about the difference between the old life and the new life in Jesus Christ. Now, if you'd like to study this topic or any topic of a biblical or spiritual nature, then please reach out to Monte Vista, and we'd love to sit down and have that Bible study with you and show you straight from the pages of the Word how to be saved and what that life looks like. Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montevistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Monte Vista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street, We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 9.30 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Monte Vista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montavistacoc.com. Hallelujah.